was uh, that was fun. That was amazing. I've always wanted to do a little podcast intro with that particular song on it. So thanks for indulging me on that. Uh, hello, this is Matt. I am sitting in my office drinking coffee. And let me explain why. Uh, just last month, October 31st to be exact, that marked the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which is pretty cool, I think. I mean, it's not every day you celebrate the 500-year anniversary of something. But in October of 1517, the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. So we've been celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It's interesting, even around the University of Tennessee, there have been exhibits set up in the library talking about the Reformation. And the reason I'm talking about this, all of this is somewhat relevant to what we do because we are RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And I get this question a good bit uh, especially at the beginning of the year when we're setting up a table for freshmen, we're posting up, we got the sign that says RUF, and people come up and they're like, oh, what, is, what does RUF stand for? And you say Reformed University Fellowship, and then they say, well, what does that, what does it mean? What, what does Reformed mean? What do you mean when you say Reformed? So over the past nine years of being a campus minister with RUF, every so often I lead a small group discussion with students over the course of a semester, trying to answer that question in more depth. What is Reformed theology? What do we mean when we identify ourselves as, quote, Reformed? And I just recently did that study in the spring, and I have I continue to get emails from students that ask me for the notes from that study. And so I just thought, hey, let's do a little series of podcasts over the break and I'll go over that material. So that's what we're doing. Over the break, over kind of the next month or so, I'm going to sit in my office once a week with a cup of coffee. Here it is. Listen for it. There it is. And uh, just walk through that material. Maybe it'll be helpful. Maybe it won't be. Whatever. And just to cite my sources on the front end, I'm getting a lot of help from I've, – I've, you know, this study got a lot of help from Les Newsom who did something very similar when he was the RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. Uh, I'm using a lot from this book called The Five Points of Calvinism from these two authors named Steele and Thomas. So here's what I want to do today just as an intro. Three big ideas for this particular episode, if you can call it that. Number one, why do a study in theology? Number two, what's the historical context of the Reformation? And then number three, why does all of this matter? So this is what we're going to do today. Number one, why do a study in theology? Number two, what's the historical context? Number three, why does this matter? Let's go number one. Why do a study in theology, which is big word for, I don't know if it's a big word, but it's a word that means the study of God. Why do a study in theology? I don't typically do focused theological studies in RUF because I think theology functions a bit like your skeleton does. 
it supports and holds up everything else, but you don't see your skeleton. The thing that you see, it's your face, it's your skin, it's the outside of you. The skeleton is the inner architecture that holds everything in place. So at RUF, we want the face that you most clearly see, that we want that thing to be the gospel. The thing that we present, what we want people to get, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Scott Sauls recently put this in a, in a tweet. Uh, he's a, the senior pastor of Christ Pres in Nashville. He tweeted, quote, Our theology is like a skeleton, a necessary foundation, but if it's the only thing visible about our faith, we are malnourished or dead. And another pastor put it this way, which is a, a kind of a similar idea. He said, Your theology is like your underwear. It's good to have on but it's tacky if it's showing. So all that to say, those are kind of some silly ideas to communicate that we don't lead with our theological positions in RUF, but they're definitely there. And so this study, this little podcast series is going to be a little unique because we're just going to examine our theological skeleton. We're going to take a closer look at our theological underwear. So what is this? uh, Why do this then? Because some people say, you know, theology leads to division. It leads to arguments. People debate. I don't want to bother with theology. I just want to love Jesus. And uh, theology and creeds and doctrine, all that kind of stuff is divisive. Let's just worship Jesus. Let's just follow Jesus. But, of course, the problem with that, and I've said this before, everyone has a theology. Even atheists, by the way. You can't avoid being theological. If you just say, forget theology, let's just, let's just love Jesus. As soon as I start asking you, why should we love Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. Why is he worthy of my love? Uh, was he God? Did he, was he, did he have a human nature? Was he sinless? Why did he die on a cross? The answers that you supply to those questions are unavoidably theological. So my point is, theology is not the problem unclarified theology or bad theology, that's the problem. So the reason I want to do a study in theology, it's so that our students that come or whoever listens to this little podcast, that they would have good theology, theology that actually is consistent with and flows out of the Bible. So that's number one. Why do a study in theology? There you go. Number two, what's the historical context Specifically, what's the historical context of the Reformation? And here's where things are going to get a bit nerdy. We're going to get historical, but the history here I think is important. Uh, Because the word reformed, quote, reformed, that's a historical reference. It's referring to the theology and the priorities that come out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Like I said before, we're RUF, we're Reformed University Fellowship. So when students come up to me, when, when freshmen come up to me and they ask me, what does reformed mean? The short version that I tell them is essentially this. Again, borrowed from Les Newsome, but the answer I get is what it means to be reformed is it means that we have the same theological priorities that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And if they want more clarity or more specifics, then I I give them. But 
what this study is in particular is going into a much longer version of what, what do I mean by that when I say we have the same theological priorities as the Protestant Reformation. But since the word reformed is historical in its designation, we got to do a little history before we can really jump into the theology, which again, this might be really boring for you. I think it's important and it warrants a sip of coffee before we begin. Okay, so from the year 500 AD to about the year 1500 AD, a thousand years, you had the Western European Catholic Church, you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, which covered, which was kind of all throughout Eastern Europe and Russia. In other words, Christianity just dominated a big chunk of kind of the Western world. But there were lots of problems with the church at throughout this season of history. It was morally corrupt. It was kind of theologically all over the place and out of whack. It was in bed with politics and the state. So over the course of time, throughout the years, there were different individuals that tried to pop up here and there and reform the church, and none of them made a ton of traction in doing so. They were mostly all martyred and executed by the church for trying to reform it. So when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door, he was not setting out to start a revolution. He was, in some ways, protesting the abuses of the church and protesting the theological ideas of the church. This is why he was later called a protestant, a protestant. He wanted to reform the church, but he didn't want the church to just kind of throw everything out and start over. He essentially just wanted the church to rethink how they were dealing with gospel issues. He was calling them back to believing the Bible, back to believing what the Bible had always taught about the gospel. And this sparked an enormous kind of theological movement. And this was the movement that became known later as the, quote, Protestant Reformation. And you have these major players like Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and John Knox and John Calvin. And so all of this, all of these ideas and theology that these guys were writing about and talking about, this theology that was rediscovered during this time has come to be called, quote, Reformed theology. And someone who really crystallized and organized this type of thinking and this theology was John Calvin, who lived from the year uh, 1509 to 1564. And his work just really dominated the theological landscape. He was a massive intellect. He published sermons and books. He wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. And people after him began to re refer to his teaching as, quote, Calvinism, which I think is something he probably would have hated. I mean, to him, he was just teaching the Bible. This would be like people talking about what is being taught at RUF, at UT, and referring to it as, you know, Howellism. And I'd be like, no, that, that's an odd description. I didn't, I'm not coming up with this stuff. I'm just teaching the Bible. But Calvin, even though he got that language of Calvinism associated with him, he was extremely popular. It's like his teaching, his ministry w went viral. But there were a few folks that were not down with Johnny C., with old Calvin. One in particular was this man named Jacob Hermann, H-E-R-M-A-N-N, -N, but he 
went by um, a Latin surname, uh, Arminius. And Arminius, he lived from fifteen, the year 1560 to the year 1609. So he's not uh, exactly a contemporary with Calvin, kind of came right after him. But uh, Jacob Arminius, Calvinism did not sit well with him. He was a professor at a seminary and he systematized his own kind of theology that was in some ways in direct opposition with Calvinism. He was a little, he was a bit of a trailblazer. He was kind of um, going against the status quo of what was Reformed theology at the time. And he died in the year 1609 and his followers, his students, some of his kind of trusted um, you know, beloved pupils, they, they took his teaching and they boiled it down into a nice, easy to package form. They, they wrote up the, the top five things that they did not like about Calvinism. This was their kind of their top five list. And in the, the next year, the year 1610, they presented this top five list, which was, by the way, called the Remonstrance. The Remonstrance. They presented this top five list to the state of Holland. And they were hoping that the state of Holland would change its official theological statement at the time away from more of a Calvinistic understanding of things to a more Arminian understanding of things. So eight years later, an official church council was formed in the town of Dort, D-O-R-D-T. I told you this (laughs) Told you this was going to get boring, but I don't know. Maybe you're still with me. Eight years later, this church council forms in the town of Dort to examine the theological claims of these five points, these remonstrants. And this council, they meet 154 times. That's 154 different sessions. They meet over the course of seven months. And at the end of this long process of examining the theology and the Bible and arguing and debating through all this, their big conclusion was this. The synod rejected the five remonstrants as being unbiblical and heretical. And they determined that a simple rejection of these five points was not enough. So they needed to set forth their own five points, kind of asserting what they believe the Bible to say. And that's what the, that's where you get these, the quote, five points of Calvinism. It came out of the Synod of Dort. So what were the five points of Arminianism? What are the five points of Calvinism? I'll just kind of walk through these with you briefly. The five points of Arminianism, the remonstrance, were basically this. Number one, human ability. Which basically meant although human nature was seriously affected by the fall of mankind into sin, the basic point is man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it's put before him. In other words, he has the ability to believe the gospel and thus be saved. That's point number one. Point number two, they would say conditional election. God elects those who will be saved, and his election, his, his, his uh, choosing of who will be saved, it's that, that choice is prompted by the fact that he foresaw who was going to believe by their own accord anyway. In other words, election is conditioned upon what man would do. Number three, they would say uh, a general atonement, meaning... 
Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but it didn't actually secure the salvation of anyone. Christ's redemption, it only becomes effective. It only counts. It only does something if you so happen to accept it by faith. And then number four of Arminianism, they would say that that grace is resistible, meaning you're never... No one is ever so completely controlled by God that that man cannot ultimately reject God. In other words, God's grace can be resisted. You can say no. And then the last thing, um, some Arminians believed that um, if you are truly saved, you can lose your salvation by failing to keep up your faith. So those were kind of the five basic points of historical Arminianism. Human, uh, human ability, election is conditional, conditional on your ability to believe, uh, the atonement was general in nature, not specific, you can resist grace, and you can fall from grace. So all of that was rejected by this, this church council, the Synod of Dort, and they asserted the five points of Calvinism. I'll walk through these. Quickly, number one, they said no, total depravity, meaning every faculty of a person, their intellect, their emotions, their will, every aspect of someone is so affected by sin that man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. You cannot believe the gospel on your own. That's number one. Uh, Number two, unconditional election. God's choice of certain individuals to salvation, it's not dependent on anything. It's not dependent on any foreseen faith or virtue on their part. It's unconditional. Number three, limited atonement, meaning Christ's atoning death actually secured the salvation of those that God has elected for salvation. It wasn't general, it was specific. Number four, grace is irresistible. All those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith. And then number five, the perseverance of the saints. All of those chosen by God to salvation will persevere till the end. They will persevere to glorification. So that's a mouthful. That's a lot. But what we're going to do in these little podcasts over the break with my slurpy coffee is we're going to take a closer look at this body of theology that's really called the five points of Calvinism. Reformed theology is actually a lot broader and bigger than just the quote five points of Calvinism, but to keep things simple for the sake of time, to zero in on one little aspect of Reformed theology, we're just going to look at these five points. So that was number two, the What is the historical context? Here's the last thing, and then we're done. Why this matters. The boring historical part is over. Now you might be thinking, okay, why why should I care about this? Why Why would a discussion over the five points of Calvinism ever be interesting to anyone? Well, here's my answer. The Church of Jesus has always been asking the questions that we're going to deal with here. 
because this discussion really, I think, has to do with the most fundamental questions of what it even means to be a, Christ, a Christian. So I, be, I bet the questions that they were asking in debating these issues are, are most likely the same questions that many modern believers are asking. So, for example, why are you even a Christian? Was it, was it a choice that you made or did you feel compelled to believe in some way? How do you even know if you're a Christian? Because I'm sure everybody knows people who call themselves Christians, but you kind of don't really, you're not confident that they really are. How do you know? Um, what's the relationship between what I'm supposed to do as a Christian versus what I hear that God's supposed to do as God? In other words, who does what when it comes to my being saved? Another question is, did Jesus come just to make salvation possible on whether or not I believed in him, or did Jesus actually accomplish my salvation? Another question, who or what is this Holy Spirit thing? What does he do? What does it do? What is it? Who is it? Who, what does he do when it comes to my salvation? Uh, another question is, can I lose my salvation? If I got into this thing called Christianity by my faith, can I get out of it if, I, if my faith waxes or wanes or kind of falls apart? Can I have any certainty or confidence that when I die, I will be with God? How can I have an assurance of my salvation? So look, my point in getting historical on you, and I really... I. I could have even gone further back, by the way. We could have gone back to the 3rd and the 4th century to this debate between St. Augustine and Pelagius. But my point is is to prove, or at least to show, that the church has always been asking these questions. These issues, these questions are fundamental to knowing what it means to be a Christian. And so, over the course of these little podcasts, I just want to present to you in the kindest way possible what I think the Bible teaches. And of course, you are always free to disagree with me, to email me. We can get together. We can wrestle through these issues. I just want you to know my approach is I'm not arguing for Matt's opinion on these things. I'm not arguing for RUF's opinion on these things or Calvin's opinion on these things. The question that I'm most interested in trying to answer throughout this little study is what does the Bible teach about these matters? And again, you're free to disagree with me on what the Bible teaches. In fact, there are lots of smart, godly people who disagree over these things. There are, there are smart, unbelievably brilliant, godly Christians on both sides of, of kind of this debate. On the Arminian side, people that would identify themselves as Arminians who still kind of hold to the Arminian position of things. You have people like John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism. Uh, you have Norman Geisler and C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham. On the Calvinist side of things, you have people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Augustine. You have modern people like Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler. Let me just end with two final thoughts and then we're done. Thought, last thought number one. To agree with the five points of Calvinism, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't tie you to a certain denomination. There are lots of men and women from different denominational backgrounds that would say that they believe in the quote five points of Calvinism. So there, there are Methodists, people like George Whitfield, 
who would be, quote, Calvinist. There are Baptists. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper are both Baptists who would say that they are Calvinists. Uh, there are Presbyterians, people like uh, R.C. Sproul, people like Tim Keller, Anglicans, kind of John White. You've got non-denominational people like John MacArthur and many, many, many others. My point is Calvinism is not necessarily denominational. It's, it's, it's a theological um, designation and identification. Last thought number two. My, my goal here is that this is not just theology for theology's sake. Like I, I'm not interested in just putting more data in your head. Like, like Information as an end in and of itself is not my goal ever. My hope is always that as people wrestle with these things and explore what the Bible teaches about these things— that really, even maybe however you fall out of this discussion, that when you come out the other side of this, my hope is that you have a deeper sense of wonder and awe of who God is. That, that ultimately, the end of theology would be worship. That as you grow in your understanding of the Bible, you grow in your understanding of, of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do, all of that will lead to doxology. It will lead to praise. It will lead to worship. That's the goal here. The goal isn't just let's be smarter. Let's be more theologically precise. The goal is God's glory. So that's where we're headed. You can join me next time with your own cup of coffee. One last sip and then we're done.